are going to start today's session with a conversation with Julian Zimmerman, Managing Director of Reinventure Capital. Julian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, and congratulations on your upcoming milestone. 500 episodes is a big one. Thank you. <laughs> we do these all the time. You know, this is 500 public ones, and then we have thousands of private ones, which are members-only sessions. So this is the, you know, we have gone online way before coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a pleasure and a, and a privilege to be here with you today. Thank you for having me. Let's get acquainted. Let's get you introduced to our audience. Tell us a bit about you, your background, as well as about Reinventure Capital. Sure. So Reinventure Capital is a, a Boston-based venture practice. We are a high-impact, high-return investment practice meaning that our investment strategy has both impact and uh, financial objectives at its core. And our specific impact strategy is around breaking the steep and persistent asymmetry in access to capital that plagues founders who are um, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, and mm -hmm. um, women of all identities. And okay. so our fund is structured to invest exclusively in U.S.-based companies that are led and controlled, substantially owned and, and directed operationally on a day-to-day -day basis by those BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color and or women founders. And also specifically within that category, we focus on companies that are at break-even and poised to grow profitably. And we do that because, first of all, we know that those are the companies that are um, positioned to become economic engines, creators of wealth and opportunity and value in the communities and the sectors in which they operate. And also, we know from uh, prior experience with the predecessor fund that those are excellent investments. Um, so uh, the predecessor can be profitable fund, level. You're saying they break even any. You want companies that are profitable at any level, whatever be the threshold, or is there a certain revenue level that you want them to get to before you get involved? That's a great question, and and because we have a cross-sectoral investment strategy, there's not a kind of set figure that applies across the board. So you can imagine, for example, that companies that are in um, health-related technologies and services might have different uh, revenue models and, and business models underlying their uh, profitability than companies that are, say, in uh, digital media or infrastructure or fintech. Um, they have significantly different underlying um, models and assumptions and, and cost basis and all the rest. So what we look for at that break-even point is that the, the founding team has validated the business model that is relevant for their sector, for the value proposition they are delivering to their customers. And, and that break-even point really represents the kind of jumping off inflection 
for them to go from validation phase to scale phase. Got it. That actually gives me a good segue into the sector question. So do you do B2B, B2C, all different sectors? Is sector agnostic completely? We are sector agnostic, although as I'm sure you're aware and, and many of your, your audience are, are also, I'm sure, well acquainted, there are some sectors that don't lend themselves well to a profitable model, right? So although we look at a lot of health-related companies, you cannot really posit a, a pharma company that, that would fit our model, right? Um, pharma, biotech, semiconductor, these don't work in capital-efficient models. Precisely. And so we also see a lot of really exciting digital media, but social yes. media doesn't really conform. And no. so we are less about uh, sector or technology or vertical we're, we're not so concerned about that. What we are really keen to see is that the founder team has identified a value proposition that they can deliver effectively and profitably and, and that has the potential to scale to a significant size. And mm -hmm. we, are, um, we are, in that sense, really generalist investors. Where we specialize really is in um, assisting those founders we we work with to think through the necessary steps in order for them, again, to successfully make that leap from the, the launch and validation phase into the scaling operation phase. And, and that's a tough jump to make. Yeah. Now, um you are. You said you're all over North America. You invest all over North America, yeah? U.S. So um, I'm going to get to specific companies and examples of fear from your portfolio, but uh, sure. let me ask you, uh, given your uh, target audience, uh, where do you get, where do you source deals from? What is the strategy that mm. gets you face-to-face -face with such an uh, entrepreneurs, the black entrepreneurs, the, mm -hmm. you know? Well, it, it's an important question, Shramana, and, and it gets to one of the fundamental myths at the heart of the current uh, incarnation of the venture sector. So we have this really deeply rooted pernicious myth about there being a shortage of investable talent. Um, uh, you've probably heard um, VCs complaining about a pipeline problem. We have a pipeline problem. Um, and, and what I say in response to that is we absolutely have no pipeline problem. We have a network problem. And the simple fact is that the vast majority of capital really is disconnected from the vast majority of entrepreneurial talent. And so for us, our deal flow cultivation practice is very much about uh, a combination of outreach in the form of um, relationship building with early stage investors who also mm -hmm. focus on our target founders, so folks who invest at pre-seed or seed stage, let's say, 
or peer communities of founders in the sectors or in, in uh, underserved, underinvested geographies within the United States. Um, we are actively in conversation with incubators and accelerators and, uh, and other programs that provide services to our target founders. We also do our own scouting. So we go uh, where the talent pool is um, rather than expecting them to come to us. And so we go to events like, for example, Black Tech Week and mm -hmm. uh, Spectrum and, and other events that are specifically for and by the founders we are seeking. And, mm -hmm. and the sad fact is most of the time our conventional venture peers aren't there. Um, and, and so it's actually not difficult at all uh, to find really outstanding talent. We actually have way more high quality deal flow than, than we can engage. And, and moreover, as a result of actually making the effort to go find and meet and engage the founders we're interested in, we also enjoy inbound uh, connections. People actively make introductions to us. Um, we have founders who come to us and say, uh, I have a term sheet from uh, fill in the blank, very famous venture firm but I would rather have reinventure as my lead investor. So how long would I have to put them on hold in order to um, have a conversation with you and, and find out whether reinventure might invest in my company. And, and that is, uh, as, um, as you know, that is just an extraordinary validation of the, um, the, value of creating those kinds of relationships and, and making the effort to reach out to the, the founders we're interested in. Okay. Um, two questions. One, first, let's start with the fund size and check size. Sure. How big a fund and what kind of check size are you writing? Yeah, so um, reInventure, the fund is a, a modest fund. This is the first fund under the reInventure banner. It's a successor to a predecessor fund under a different banner. Um, it's a $50 million fund, $50 million U.S., uh, investing solely in the U.S., and we invest anywhere between a half million and five million per company, typically on average around three per company. Um, okay. For uh, first investments, um, we, we would frequently invest towards the bottom of that range to leave room for a follow-on. Okay. And uh, I want to get into some examples from your portfolio, including how you met the founders, what, what is it about the founders that you resonated with. Before we do that, though, I would like to understand the DNA of uh, your background and your partner's background, so that uh, you know I can you know connect the dots of why you're investing in the kinds of companies you're investing in. Sure. Besides the besides the demographics. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's start with my senior partner Ed Duggar. Ed is um, 
really one of the pioneers of impact investing here in the United States, uh, starting in the 1980s. Uh, so long before we even had this phrase of impact investing and, and long before it was a, a widespread discussion uh, among investors really of, of any category. And, and he is also one of the real few, very few black statesmen in the venture community. Um, he was uh, formerly the, the president of a practice called Urban National Corporation or UNC Ventures based also here in Boston that um, really was a, a pathbreaker intentionally in investing by design in undervalued, underinvested founders, focusing primarily on, on black and, and brown founders, and um, developed quite an extraordinary track record. So the uh, UNC Ventures Fund returned 32% IRR harvested to its investors, which is top-tier performance for any venture strategy. And its portfolio was majority success, so by, also by design. So two-thirds of the companies in that portfolio contributed to the financial return. And of the remaining third, about half or about a sixth of the portfolio returned at, at least some or, or all of the invested capital, but, but didn't contribute to, did not contribute to the return. And so it's almost an inversion of the prevailing venture practice, um, both in terms of, of the makeup of the portfolio and in terms of the uh, return uh, profile of the portfolio. And um, Ed was uh, quite appropriately uh, a kind of media darling for a time because of this uh, distinct <laughs> differentiation from the prevailing venture community, and um, and yet uh, very shortly after that fund, the UNC Ventures Fund was harvested, um, that story kind of fell into collective amnesia. Um, it was so different than than the story we are accustomed to hearing and and reinforced that it, it sort of got lost. And so um, Ed decided that it was, a couple of years ago, I decided that it was, it was time to do the same work again and, and recreate that, that compelling example. And uh, it was my great good fortune and, and honor that he sought me out to recruit me to join him in that to launch reinventure together. I started out uh, in a, a very different way than, than most people who find their way into venture investing. Uh, I never aspired to, to be in the venture capital world. I started off as a, an aerospace engineer. I went to MIT when I was 16 uh, because I had wanted to be an astronaut since I was 12, and I thought that that's how you became an astronaut, was you went to MIT and you studied aeronautical, astronautical engineering, and um, 
and it's not the worst idea, but it's a uh, it's a bit naive. So, but as a teenager, this was the way I thought about it, and so I went to MIT and I I did uh, major in aeronautical astronautical engineering, and I I double majored in literature, and I had a wonderful first career. I spent 14 years uh, working for a tiny little company here in Boston. I joined in the 1980s, um, shortly after I graduated. And and this was also before we had the kind of cultural phenomenon of entrepreneurship, right? So sure. this was a point in time when if you were an aerospace engineer, you went to one of the big aerospace houses, um, one of the, you know, enormous behemoth companies, yeah. you name it. And, and so my friends and, and classmates and, and uh, family members thought it was quite odd and, and even a little bit uh, alarming that I was employee number seven at this tiny little upstart company that had just been formed. And, um, Many people, uh, I think, very well-intentioned gave me advice to, you know, please reconsider and go get a real job. (laughs) But it turned out to be really a a phenomenal experience, not only because I worked with astronauts and cosmonauts and NASA and the Canadian Space Agency and the European Space Agency and the Soviets and then the Russians and the Japanese. And I worked with scientists all over the world and my team and I set precedents and several of them have still not been surpassed and and accomplished amazing things and won awards and uh, were in neutral buoyancy and parabolic flight simulations and at mission control to say go and it launch facilities to sea launches and uh, you name it. Uh, It was just an amazing adventure. And I was ultimately uh, a finalist twice in the NASA astronaut selection process, which was as close as you can get, (laughs) but I was ultimately not selected. And, and that was both a signal honor and also, uh, you know, a, a huge disappointment, a, a kind of heartbreaking end to a spectacular experience. And it was also, in addition to all of that, it was a phenomenal hands-on training in not only entrepreneurship, because we were growing this tiny little company in an industry dominated by giants, and our company was all about doing what the big companies couldn't. Um, it was also, for me, uh, a really excellent grounding in a discipline of looking at the status quo and the um, established thinking and, and asking questions about where is, where is that missing something? Where, where are there paths and opportunities for us to come up with substantially better solutions mm-hmm. and, and, and to actually do that and prove it. Um, so at the end of that run, I had had, uh, you know, more adventures and, and more 
professional challenges and experiences than many people get to enjoy an entire working life. And I had done everything I could do to achieve my aspiration to be an astronaut, and I hadn't gotten to have that uh, particular dream fulfilled. And so I really felt that I had, again, the, a great opportunity and privilege to think about what else would I care about doing as much mm-hmm. as serving the global science community. And so um, after really thinking and, and looking around and talking to people and uh, exploring for a couple of years in the early 2000s, I ended up co-founding a clean energy company. And this is before the clean tech uh, boom. Um, my colleagues and I, my co-founders and I spent about two years pitching more people than I care to remember, many of whom said to us, uh, some version of no one in their right mind will ever invest in clean energy. And we were called um, hippies and communists, and I was personally told that I was delusional, and once again, uh, well-meaning people told me I should really rethink this madness and I should, you know, go do something much more sensible. <laughs> and, and fortunately, uh, fortunately, um, they turned out to be wrong, and, and as we all know, uh, you know, we have now had a boom and, and even a, a somewhat thing of a bust, but the, the clean energy era is, is now unfolding. Sure. And so um, after a couple of years of, of really getting nowhere, that company did actually become one of the uh, real pathbreakers in, in the heavy industry part of the world, serving fixed base uh, power generators and, and, and heavy uh, on-site um, power generators, and, uh, and eventually changed the conversation in, in that sector uh, from mm-hmm. absolutely no way we are ever going to contemplate clean, green kinds of propositions to this is really the future of our sector, and and this is the way we go forward. And um, and that company did eventually have uh, mainstream, well-known investors. It took us a long time to get there, and yeah. um, and also uh, you know that company was one of innumerable companies that were. Um, killed off in the extinction event that occurred when the markets imploded in 2007 and 2008. And so once again, you know, uh, I had this amazing, amazing experience of being at the forefront and accomplishing something incredible with my colleagues. But, you know, the ultimate success was outside our control. And, Mm -hmm. and that was also an excellent learning experience to realize that, um, you know, there's a certain amount of ego that you really have to invest in any new enterprise, but there's also, um, there's a limit to, you know, how far your ego will take you. And so um, as a result of that, I became very actively involved in the innovation and entrepreneurship community not only here in the greater Boston area, but, but much further afield. Um, and, and I was fortunate to uh, 
be involved in, in a bunch of things outside the U.S. as well. And uh, I was a mentor and a judge uh, for competitions and an advisor to many companies, board member, sometimes consultant, and I joined a few as an early team member. And um, over the experience of, of advising and working with dozens and dozens and dozens of founders, I came to form, much to my own surprise, my own investment thesis. And, uh, and I, I really saw myself as somebody who was on the innovation and operations side of the table, not on the capital side of the table. And so I, I told all sorts of people I knew about this opportunity I saw that, that I didn't see uh, a lot of investors recognizing. And, um, and, and once again, people said, uh, yeah, you know, I think maybe you should just, you know, stick to what everybody else is doing. That seems a bit far-fetched. And, and so I, um, I found a co-founder and I, I raised a tiny little bit of money, a couple million dollars, and made four seed stage investments in 2013 and 2014. Um, and, and now we would think of those as pre-seed because, as we know, the uh, um, landscape keeps shifting. Um, and, and just as I was in the process of kind of tying a bow around that and preparing to think about what else would I do next and, and what, you know, what kinds of things, again, would I um, apply myself to that, that I would care about uh, deeply, it was my incredible good fortune that Ed came to recruit me to join him in launching reInventure. And so having been a co-founder myself and having worked with dozens and dozens and dozens of founders, not only was I intimately acquainted with the ways in which the, the mainstream venture community discounts and dismisses founders who don't resemble Mark Zuckerberg, but, but I had also seen an enormous population of founders who were doing all kinds of interesting things that um, regardless of their gender or ethnicity or, or uh, city or, or any other category were, were just being routinely missed. Um, because they didn't conform in other ways to the prevailing venture expectations. And so um, from, from personal experience and from years of observation and, and involvement in the community, it was abundantly apparent to me. It was, it was patently clear that, that there was a, a compelling investment opportunity with the reinventure strategy. And moreover, um, you know, how many times in, in your life do you get to have the opportunity to work with someone of, of Ed's stature? And so it was an absolute no-brainer to join him in, in doing that. You hear me? Uh, you're back. Yes, I lost you for a moment, but I see you now, and I hear you. Um, so what I was saying is that um, if this was very helpful. Um, 
so you were very comfortable with technology. That's that's the main conclusion that I got out of this. Uh, let's start with what uh, what companies have you invested in from the MIT ecosystem? I am an MIT alum as well. I'm an electrical engineering and computer science grad from MIT. So a grad student, actually. I was in the PhD program. So um, let's, if you have any, let's talk about those first. Sure. So, so first of all, um, for for the other MIT nerds out there, shout to its course six, shout to the course sixteen, and shout to course twenty one. <laughs> um, <laughs> we have in this fund. This is a, a newly launched fund, so we don't yet have uh, any uh, fellow alumni we can point to in the fund. Uh, but but I would like to uh, I would like to seize on on your backgrounds, Shramana, to to kind of tell an illustrative story about the kinds of founders we see as compelling, um, and then I will talk about um, some examples of companies we are um, watching very closely and and uh, contemplating for near term investments. So. A um, couple of years ago, I had the privilege of speaking at the MIT Women's Conference. Um, and by the way, someday I hope that we no longer have the need to have such events, but it's an important event um, to gather together women who are current and, uh, and past members of the MIT academic community. Because the sad fact is that they don't enjoy the same access to capital as their white male peers. Even though they are from MIT, even though they are holders of advanced degrees, in many cases multiple advanced degrees, even though they have patents in their own names, not in somebody else's that they've licensed, but, but their own patents, even though they have in many cases uh, significant market traction already. And, and at the MIT Women's Conference, um, I was approached by several women, um, and, and the conversation we had is unfortunately a conversation I have with far too many founders from MIT and from many other uh, alma maters. Namely, uh, I have, I have, I have the degrees, right? I have uh, I have master's degrees. I have a doctoral degree. I have postdocs. I have, uh, you know, I I have formed a, a a really spectacular team around me. I have customer demand. I have, you know, contracts that are um, waiting to be filled. I have significant. Uh, inbound interest in from customers we haven't even marketed to, just like you haven't even marketed this program and you have uh, audience showing up. And I cannot get a meeting. I can't be taken seriously. Uh, or when I do meet with a venture capital partner, um, the questions I get are about my children or about my husband or about you know my my personal life, or um, or about you know who is who's who's coaching me or who's helping me, and uh, and so what should I do? And and unfortunately, 
the fact of the matter is that even though a significant fraction of, of investment capital is concentrated in the, the neighborhood surrounding MIT, um, 02139, <laughs> um, there's, there's a, there, there's a, a, a very narrow lens for the, the kinds of founders who are, con excuse me, considered investable. And, and shortly after that conference, I had a conversation with someone at MIT who said to me, well, surely there, there is not enough qualified talent for an investment strategy like reinventures. And, um, and I said to him, well, uh, look around you. This was in June, and I said, you know, MIT just had commencement, and and the institute saw fit to confer degrees, and and in many cases advanced degrees, on women, on people of color, on people who are you know born outside the U.S., uh, who are citizens of other nations, you know, people who are not. Um, you know, U.S. born white men. And he said, well, yeah, but, but you know, uh, but th th that's not really enough. And I said, well, okay, but so did Harvard and so did all the other universities in the area. And by the way, there are other universities too <laughs> who also just recently conferred degrees on, on their students and graduate students and postdocs. And, um, and and he really found this very hard to to grasp, even though he himself was based at MIT and interacted on a daily basis with that phenomenally talented and incredibly gloriously diverse population. And so that really is indicative of the the kinds of um, unconscious blindness that, that we see um, getting in the way. So an example of a company we like very much and, and we are tracking. We met this company in, uh, they're based in Baltimore. The company is called Warrior Central, excuse me, Warrior Centric Health. And um, we met them by way of outreach. And uh, they are, founded and led by all active duty service veterans. Uh, the, the founding CEO is an African-American man, uh, highly decorated in his military career. Uh, the chief medical officer is an African-American woman, also highly decorated in her military career. The chief operating officer is a white woman, again. <laughs> they saw several years ago, um, not only from their own firsthand experience in the military and veteran communities, but they also saw coming out from the NIH designations based on the, this is in the United States, the National Institutes of Health. The NIH had recognized that uh, veterans and their families compose 25% or more of civilian hospital patient populations. 
and 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 are treated as civilians in the United States. When you return from military service and you return to military life, you have um, private health insurance through your employer, like all other civilians, and so you are not recognizably different from from other patients. And yet, veterans and their families have very different health trajectories and concerns. And so this presents a real challenge for their own health and quality of life, but it also presents a challenge for hospitals who don't necessarily even know how to recognize those patients, let alone uh, understand their health concerns and trajectories and to treat them appropriately. So this team uh, developed a new um, standard of care around veterans and their families um, under guidance and, and grant funding from the National Institutes of Health and from the United States Department of Defense. They validated that um, with the medical uh, review and study, and, and they prepared a, a platform to roll out standard of care and, and certification for hospital systems, for all of the medical staff in hospital systems. And uh, so they rolled out the initial pilot with, um, I think, half dozen or a dozen hospitals in um, 2018, 2019. And, um, and it was so enormously successful. Uh, chief medical officers of the hospital systems loved it because it improved their patient outcomes. Uh, the chief financial officers of the hospital systems love it because it reduces their costs from, from readmissions and retesting and, and and ineffective care. And the, of course, the general counsel loves it because it reduces their exposure to um, legal uh, risk for, for malpractice, right, or, or mistreatment of their patients. And um, so warrior-centric health, one, uh, was recognized with a, a, the best new product or service award by the American Hospital Association. They're in process of rolling out now this platform to a $4 billion market in the United States alone, which, mm-hmm. which, the, um, which they have pitched m- many, many times to the, the mainstream venture community, which doesn't see it as a, a real opportunity. Um, so partially because of who the founders are, um, they have had the same kinds of experiences that, unfortunately, uh, so many founders who are, um, again, not the usual suspects um, encounter, but also because uh, people have said to them, like, well, uh, how can this even be a business? Um, and so the, um, the both the founders themselves appeal to us very much because these are incredibly accomplished, very knowledgeable, very capable, very disciplined founders who have demonstrated to us that, that they not only understand their customers and what they need, but they have that validation from their customers. Yes, this is important to us. We want this. And they have a profitable business model 
They're not profitable yet, so this is why we're tracking them and watching them with great enthusiasm and interest. When they get to that break-even point, um, we hope to be, you know, first in line and first on their uh, side as well to be able to work with them to grow that business. Very good. Well, wonderful conversation, Julian. This is uh, good good insights into a corner that you have identified as underserved, and that's always what we look for in positioning, right, in, um, both in product positioning as well as in fund positioning. Exactly. So,